Salve and salutations. My name is Charles Chestnut, this is Storied History, and this story is about the Christmas truce, when the British and the Germans stopped fighting for Christmas in World War I. This particular portion is about Christmas Day, because I have already done Christmas Eve. So just a very quick recap, World War I was messy, bloody, and ugly. It had been going on for about six months at this point. Most of this takes place in France, uh, between the British and the Germans. On Christmas Eve, there was a lot of lead up to this. This did not all happen at once. It did not happen in a vacuum. There were a lot of things that did lead up to it. It did not come from the top down. This was more of a series of individual and small groups of soldiers that decided to put aside their differences for a day or two. The lead up stories are best left covered in the episode that I have already done, so I will not address them here. Two points that I do want to bring up about Christmas Eve. One is the story of Major Buchanan Dunlop. He was one of those that had organized the singing groups on the British side. They had such great voices that it inevitably led to singing elsewhere, and the Germans responded with carols of their own. Uh, the news of his exploits and his little impromptu concert would make headlines back in Britain. Literally, the headline was, The Major Who Sang Carols Between the Trenches. He got in a little bit of trouble for that, as sort of a scapegoat, but more on that later. Not all of the officers on the British side had shown the goodwill that I covered in the previous episode. Uh, one unnamed officer wrote down, When I got back to our trenches after dark on Christmas Eve, I found the German trenches looking like the Thames. They had got little Christmas trees burning all along the parapets of their trench. No truce had been proclaimed, and I was all for not allowing the blighters to enjoy themselves, especially since they had killed one of our men just that afternoon. But my captain denied my request and would not allow me to shoot. Soon, though, I had an excuse. I heard a shot coming from somewhere. I blamed the Germans, lined up my platoon, and had those Christmas trees down and out. Not everyone experienced the wonder of the Christmas trees that I described in the last episode. There does seem to be a common thread where the truce was outright rejected with violence, and that was because violence had occurred that day. Usually those overtures, when they were rejected, were rejected with gunfire. So this was not a universal situation. But where they did meet on Christmas Eve, the truce did hold. On Christmas Eve, when the Germans and the British were meeting in no man's land, one of the things that they did was arrange for the next day, for Christmas Day. Now, the official reasons for some of these pauses in the fighting were to collect the dead and to bury them. The dead in no man's land had been left there sometimes for days or weeks, and burying those bodies is necessary. Having a break in the fighting to do that was advantageous to both sides. Now, it is quite obvious that in many of these cases, this was more of an excuse to have an official break in the fighting for Christmas that was not officially sanctioned by the commanders. And we know that because in so many places, when the chores were done, the fighting did not resume. Christmas Day in France, that year along the trenches, dawned clear and cold. A layer of frost etched the landscape, providing some relief from the squelching mud, giving everything a softened quality. Beautiful. If stark. With the dawn came the messages. There were signs being posted on boards hoisted out of the trenches. You no fight, we no fight. There were joyous greetings screamed to one another. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas, English. We are Saxons. You are Anglo-Saxons. 
If you do not fire, we do not fire. Although meetings had occurred on Christmas Eve, it is one thing to meet under the cover of darkness, quite another to exit your trench in full view and range of the enemy's snipers. In one place, the first person to make the move was a German sergeant that held in one hand a white handkerchief and in the other a Christmas tree. He climbed out of the trenches into the silence and walked into the middle of no man's land. He placed the tree down and stood there waiting to see what the English would do. They responded by sending one of their own officers out, breaking a few bits of paper and putting it on the Christmas tree, thereby giving an unofficial permission for both sides to begin interacting with one another. And they did. The rudimentary meetings all had the same ideas, the same themes. If you don't fire, we don't fire. Soon the sniping had stopped altogether. You could not hear gunfire anywhere which at that point and at that time and at that place was very, very odd and unique indeed. The artillery had gone silent as well. The unearthly stillness reigned over the trenches in France. And although most British accounts do suggest that it was the Germans that had made the first overtures, there are some German letters that say on Christmas Day it was actually the opposite. For instance, suddenly from the enemy, from the Englander, came a great cheering, and in surprised, we saw them coming out of their little trenches. We came out of our little mouse holes and saw the English advancing toward us. They had no rifles, and therefore we knew that it could only be a greeting, and so that was all right. We advanced toward them without our weapons and met them halfway. Another German soldier's letter states unequivocally that at 9 a.m. on Christmas Day, an English officer accompanied by two of his men, came across and officially asked for a ceasefire until midnight so that we may both bury our dead. This was willingly granted. They seemed not to be so bad after all. As the little truces held throughout the morning, the interactions became more pronounced. That unnamed English officer who the night before had ordered his men to shoot at the Germans' Christmas trees found himself actually speaking with the Germans in no man's land. Not just speaking with them, but working with them to bury their dead. He had a particular animosity toward the Prussians, who had a reputation of being some of the most fearsome fighters. But when he saw, well, in his own words, when the Germans came out, and as soon as we saw them, that they were Saxons and not the Prussians, I knew that they were all right. Because they're good fellows on the whole. When the Saxon officer came out, we gravely saluted one another. I pointed to the nine dead Germans lying in midfield and suggested burying them. Both sides proceeded to do so. We gave them wooden crosses, which completely won them over, and soon the men seemed to be on the best of terms, and believe it or not, laughing with one another. These are British and Germans burying the dead, both British and German, that had been shot by the other sides. A very curious situation. Chaplains were called forward on both sides, not just to give a little Christmas greeting to the troops, but to preside over the burials. They were as surprised as any at the level of peace that was reigning all along the trenches. One such English minister was only 19 years old. He described that the burial was awful, just too awful to describe, but the ceremony that followed was different. We had the most wonderful joint burial services. Our padre arranged the prayers and the psalms and the interpreter wrote them out in German. 
They were read first in English by ours, and then in German by a boy who I think was studying for the ministry, who could not have been more than sixteen or so. It was the most extraordinary and wonderful sight. The Germans on one side, the English on the other, the officers standing in front, every head bared and every head bowed. Yes, I think it was a sight that we will never see again. He's probably right about that. Something like this never happened again, any war, anywhere. When the burial details were finished, when the small ceremonies had concluded, and when the hymns had been sung and hats put back on their heads, now there was silence once again. True silence. It was so quiet that the natural sounds for once could be heard once again. Normally they were drowned out by the crackle and the boom of the guns. But now you could clearly hear the wind in the trees and the birds in the air. There were no planes overhead, no observation balloons, no bombs, no rifle fire, no snipers, no artillery. Just the occasional lark calling out. The silence seemed extraordinary after the usual din. From all sides the birds seemed to arrive. We hardly ever see a bird generally. Later in the day I had about 50 sparrows outside my dugout, which just shows how complete the silence and the quiet was. One young private actually missed it. He said, I missed the sounds of the shots flying over. It's like a clock which has stopped ticking. It makes me nervous and uneasy on a level I can't fully explain. Most of the men realized that what they were doing was unique. In letters home, they wrote things like, the most extraordinary celebration of Christmas any of us will ever experience. And I had one of the greatest experiences of my life on Christmas Day. And it was the funnest and most amusing Christmas I have ever spent. One wonderful description had this, uh, Oswald Tilly of London. Just think, father and mother, that while you were eating your turkey, I was out talking and shaking hands with the very men I had been ordered to kill just a few hours before. It was astounding. Fancy shooting at the Germans over and over again, and then going over to wish them a Merry Christmas. I don't think that's ever happened in world history before. You would have thought that peace had been declared. The whole thing is simply extraordinary. With the morning and the peace and the silence and the chores done, they began to celebrate. Now the Germans and the British began singing, not just in the trenches at one another, but next to each other. They began conversing in broken English, broken German, broken French. Both sides have been given small gifts and trinkets from home, and now they begin to exchange them. The British had corned beef, tea, cigarettes. The English had those aplenty. And they were crazy about the German cigars. They traded corned beef for sauerkraut, for sausages, for chocolates. The cigars were, of course, much better most of the time than the cigarettes, a lot stronger than the English were used to, leading to amusing incidences when the English would start smoking these cigars and start coughing because you can't inhale them like you would inhale an English cigarette. And they were simply unfamiliar with this. Cigars were a status symbol in Britain. Only smoked by the aristocrats and never by the common man. But in Germany, they were very widespread. So when the Germans pulled up mass numbers of cigars, one of the British actually exclaimed, Blimey, it's a millionaire's battalion. We don't have a lot of good records of the conversations that they had or the jokes that the British and the Germans were telling one another, but we do have a few. In one instance, the British were expressing astonishment that the Germans had been given champagne to celebrate Christmas. 
They expressed regret that the Germans had drunk it all and there were no champagne bottles left. The Germans said that they were sorry and that if they had known that we were going to be having this little talk, we would have ordered more from a town called Lille. A charming town, Lille, just behind our lines. Do you know it? The British replied, not yet, but we will. At which point they all began to laugh. One German non-commissioned officer, a sergeant, informed one of the Brits that he goes to America for two months every year on business. He has learned his English there, and that is why he spoke with an unflattering accent. The German said that he was to have been married originally, was intended to be married on the 12th of October to a lady in Chicago. The Brit informed him that you can reschedule it for next year because we were going to have you licked by Easter and this will all be done by the summer. The German laughed. Another German told the British that he had spent some time in England just the year before and had fallen in love with a girl. I wondered if they wouldn't mail her a letter. They agreed. So right then and there, in no man's land, he wrote out a small postcard and gave it to the British soldier, who actually did mail it. He mailed it off that night, although he did express doubt that she would be very keen on seeing her German suitor again. These things were happening all over the British lines. Goodwill seemed to be the theme of the day. It is estimated that approximately two-thirds of the entire British line experienced a truce in one form or another. The most mild would be the simply not shooting at each other during the day, all the way up to walking out and exchanging gifts. And then the pinnacle of the day, on that particular area, a chaplain in his service, walking around the graves, startled a hare, a large rabbit. The, hare, the rabbit began to run, and the Germans began to chase it, trying to catch it for a good Christmas dinner. They couldn't shoot it, because obviously there's a ceasefire, and they didn't even have their weapons. If they had brought them, if they had begun shooting at the rabbit, the peace may not have held. So the Germans began running around trying to catch the rabbit. The English are laughing at them. They think it's a good joke up until the rabbit runs into a small cabbage patch. The Germans run in after it, and they disturb another half dozen of these large animals. The hares run straight at the British, who then realize that this might actually be a pretty good meal and good sport. So they begin to chase them as well. Half a dozen hares running around no man's land being chased by the British and the Germans while in the trenches and sitting on the parapets. Both sides were laughing at their comrades. A truly remarkable Christmas. Five of the seven hares escaped. Two were captured. One were give, went to the British, the other went to the Germans. Both sides began debating with, with each other how best to cook them and what to cook them with. And of course, the legend the story that gets told probably most often. Soccer. Football. Did it happen? Yes. Maybe. Probably. Possibly. It is definitely probably possible. It does make a great story. And I do understand that. Was there an official football game? Not on the level that would be considered an official football game. There's no actual pitch that could have been drawn up to the correct lengths. Although it is unquestionably true that the footballs did exist in the trenches. There's well-documented cases where as part of the recreation behind the lines, the soldiers would have matches between the units on the British side. The Germans were also quite fond of the game. They called it footer. And they uh, had a similar availability of equipment necessary. 
but that's behind the lines in the trenches, hundreds of yards, maybe miles away from the, the rear. Uh, did they have footballs? Probably not. But they had other things, things that they could kick. This is a hard one because there's so many small accounts where they are referencing a little kickabout, but it is unlikely that they ever actually played an official game. Certainly not on the level that would be considered a full game. This would have been small groups setting up an area where there's just enough room to kick something around and saying, okay, this is our goal, this is your goal, and then having at it. The only truly documented event that we have that is more than just a vague reference is in a company of the Lancer Fusiliers. Their official records said they played a football match against the enemy with an old tin can for a ball. Just a few of our lads and theirs, and we won 3-2. to two. So did it occur? It depends on how you want to define it. I say yes, that's enough. You've got two teams, not regulation teams, not regulation size, not regulation ball, but they're kicking something about with two goal lines and the British won 3-2. to two. I think that's enough for a story. This most rom- much romanticized tale has grown over the decades. There's actually a very nice statue in Liverpool, uh, depict in England, depicting two soldiers shaking hands over a ball. But nothing lasts forever, and the day did begin to draw to a close. And as it did, the little meals began to spring up. The soldiers that had stashed away food for Christmas dinner began to pull them out, including wine that had been, say, uh, liberated stolen from the French countryside, and beer. Earlier in the day, when they were sharing things, some of the British pulled out a barrel of French beer. Yes, not French wine, French beer. They shared it with the Germans, who were grateful for the gesture, but did not enjoy the beer. So at the end of the day, one of the Germans rolled out a barrel of German beer from their lines and gave it to the English, saying, Happy Christmas, we have plenty. And so on that particular location, the British soldiers got drunk on German beer on Christmas. The truces held throughout the evening, even more than they were supposed to have. In fact, in many locations, the officers were frustrated because they were calling for their troops to come back to the trenches, and they wouldn't go. Enjoying themselves, drinking, laughing, kicking tin cans about, and not wanting to return to the realities of war. At one point, a German officer actually approached a British officer and asked him to start firing over their heads because this has got to stop. This cannot go on. They get them back to the trenches. And they finish their celebrations by themselves. The next day, a boxing day, a much-celebrated holiday around the world, although not so much in America, uh, the day after Christmas. There were calls for the truce to hold, and they did, sort of. There are accounts on both sides of the soldiers insisted that they could not fire at their enemies because they were such good people. Uh, Just yesterday, we were drinking, laughing, and having fun. I can't kill them now. Any units that had this kind of reluctance ended up eventually getting rotated out and rotated to other places. Generally what happened, though, was when the fighting did resume, the, the death 
the death toll would resume, and the goodwill you may feel evaporates when your friends are being killed around you. No one was court-martialed. That is a myth that has sprung up. There are no records on either side of anyone being court-martialed or executed because of this truth. There's another myth that has kind of sprung up because of a fictional movie from about 20 years ago. None of the German units were sent to the Russian front as punishment. There's, again, no evidence. It didn't actually happen. The only person who did get in a little bit of trouble was Major Buchanan Dunlop. He was the face of this whole thing because his face was on the cover of a newspaper as the major who sang carols between the trenches. He was officially reprimanded by his general, although it didn't really affect his career. He was promoted many times during the war. He was very highly honored, given the order of the British Empire. He ended up retiring from the war as a lieutenant colonel in command of his own battalion. He stayed retired for several decades and then served in the Home Guard during World War II. Very highly regarded, highly well-respected man. He died in 1947 and was buried with honors at age 73. In 1915, there were attempts to kind of rekindle this. They all failed, all of them, universally. Some of that was because the command had absolutely clamped down on this, that this was not a thing that was going to happen in 1915. But also that the troops themselves, having gone through a year of warfare, did not want and had no good feelings to share Christmas with their enemies. This had been a unique thing when both sides had really honestly believed that the war was going to be over quickly. It wasn't, of course. The war lasted for many more years, and many, many of the men who celebrated Christmas in 1914 in those trenches died in them before the war was over. Fergie, the British young officer, who had gone out on no man's land on Christmas Eve. The one that the Germans mistook his name for a greeting and were calling Fergie, Fergie, Fergie to the English as they were calling for their captain. He had fought his last day before Christmas. Fergie was wounded on December 26th, badly. The artillery salvos that opened up after the Christmas truce had ended struck him and he was grievously wounded in one of his arms, which had to be amputated. He recovered in England in a hospital in Nottingham, and he told his stories to the nurses, one of whom took the time to actually sit down and write them out in great detail so that his own memoirs, his own memories, would be recorded. He closed with saying this, Words fail me, in trying to express my appreciation for the attention and the kindness of our nurses in this era of great strife. Words may have failed him, but his actions didn't. Fergie married the nurse that had taken the time to write his story. To her and all of the others that recorded this remarkable event, we are grateful. And that's the Christmas truce between the British and the Germans. Obviously, there's a lot more to it than, than this. Uh, this is a very simplified, storified version. There are a lot of books, several books that have been written about this. Uh, some 
are very simplistic, kind of for children. Some really do go into great detail and the depths about the people that were involved for reproducing their letters, that sort of thing. There are a lot of pictures, too. I put some of those up on my website, storiedhistory.com, www.storied, S-T-O-R-I-E-D, history, one word, dot com. If you'd like to take a look at those simple pictures, uh, links to a few of the better books that you can buy on Amazon about this particular event, you can find them there. I'm Charles Chestnut. This has been Storied History. You can find me wherever you get your podcasts. I've also got a Twitch channel, Storied History, which is distinctly less formal, but I also think no less fun. If you'd like the story, I do have others, and I will continue to add to them. So subscribe to the podcast, follow me on Twitch, give me a good rating. All of those things really do matter a great deal when you're starting something new. Thank you for listening. I will go find the next good story. And uh, my friend Saudi says I need an outro, so a musical note to end on. So, Saudi, this one's for you. La, la, la. Thank you for listening. Ha, <laughs> ha.